Augmented reveals the stories behind a new era of industrial operations where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In episode 46 of the podcast, the topic is manufacturing training in Massachusetts. Our guest is John Killam, president of MassMAP. In this conversation, we talk about the important role of manufacturing in Massachusetts, fostering the next generation manufacturers, manufacturing workforce trends and actions, and including how to recruit talent to the region and to our manufacturing firms. Augmented is a podcast for leaders, hosted by futurist Trondarne Unheim, presented by Tulips.co, the frontline operations platform, and associated with MFG.works, the manufacturing upskilling community launched at the World Economic Forum. Each episode dives deep into a contemporary topic of concern across the industry and airs at 9 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time every Wednesday. Augmented, the Industry 4.0 podcast. John, how are you today? Welcome. Hi, doing great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. I'm excited. Um, you know, manufacturing and training is so important, and you, you have that key role in Massachusetts. So, um, I, you know, I'm going to j- jump into that. But I first, John, wanted to to cover your background. It's interesting to hear from everybody how they got into manufacturing. You know, I know a while back you you have a business degree, uh, but that could lead you anywhere from from Carthage College, and then you did go, uh, in, you know, into Plants. You were a plant manager, actually, which uh, I think is fascinating these days to have that experience now that factories and plants are, you know, poised to change so much. This kind of experience is just uh, crucial. So I want you to talk to us a little bit about that. And then now, of course, with uh, leading mass MEP, which we'll cover in, in some detail, you have this wide responsibility for training. But uh, just answer me this. How did you get into manufacturing and how do you sort of explain how your background led you there? Um, okay. It's been a long time since I've thought about that, to be honest with you. Um, it was more accidental than intentional. Um, when I graduated from high school, um, there wasn't an intent to go to college at that point, um, mostly because my family didn't have the, the kind of money we needed uh, to pay for college. And so my intent was to go to work and uh, hopefully find a, a company to work for who would help with my tuition. And so geographically, there was a, a company down the street from me. Uh, it was uh, what we would call a job shop that was privately owned. And um, they were making components for the uh, automotive industry. And um, so they tried me out in different positions. And I showed some talent, apparently, because they they moved me around quite a bit and trained me on a number of uh, different pieces of equipment. It really didn't excite me a whole lot. Um, I did like the technical piece of it, but um, I didn't really like the factory that much. It wasn't very clean. It was dirty, and I was on a night shift. Um, I ended up, um, strangely enough, going to a company uh, called Snap-on Tools, uh, you may know their products. And purely because a friend of mine told me that uh, they they were hiring and they were uh, paid really good wages. Um, so what I saw at that company was an introduction into the numerical control machines or CNC machines, 
which was at that time the, the real future. And so it got, it got me more interested in what was happening. Um, then quickly moved into engineering, into management, um, seeing the whole picture uh, of, of how a manufacturing system works, and then transitioning that company from the way we always did things to a uh, more uh, uh, lean type company um, with a, a culture of, of teamwork and, um, and with a focus on flow. So I, I had a great education. Uh, the, when I, before I left Snap-on Tools, there, the, um, there's a, one of the founders of the Toyota production system, uh, Taichi Ono, I believe is his name. Um, he created a um, uh, consulting group with, from some of the, yeah, the manufacturing engineers he had at the Toyota plant. And so while I was at Snap-on, we were fortunate enough to have them come in, three of them, to teach us um, what, how they define the Toyota production system. And it was fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And I learned so much in a week um, and just very appreciative of that. And so that's one of my, I think, one of my unique characteristics from manufacturing because I know there's a, a lot of manufacturers that probably could do 10 times better um, um, than I did. But um, I, I really like the complexity of it and uh, the people side of it as well. You know, John, one of the really fascinating things that I thought about in preparation uh, for our conversation was that you, you were at Snap-on Tools from 1979 to 2007. That kind of tenure, at least in my conversations, and maybe it's because, you know, I'm relatively young to interviewing people, you know, on, uh, who have been on the shop floor in manufacturing, but it, it is such an impressive feat to me to have been, you know, with the same employer in, in kind of a, in that transitional period, what, if anything, can you tell me about, you know, 1979 to 2007, and then now reflecting on 2021? Yeah. I mean, these are, for, for young people, enormously formative years. Um, what happened in a factory in that time? Yeah. Um, every time I was fed up, and I was ready to leave. And that was every four to five years. Um, somebody would come back to me and say, John, we need you here. And it would be a response, a greater responsibility. And so um, as long as I was growing, taking on new things, I, I wanted to be there. Um, over time, there were circumstances too, right? In 1979, not too long after that, we had a terrible economy, right? 1991, we had big layoffs. Um, so it really wasn't a time to be jumping jobs and, and, and frankly, snap on tools, even, you know, back then was a much more progressive company in that, um, the benefits that they provided, the, the structure wasn't overwhelming. There was a, a willingness to change and, uh, an appetite for creativity. And so it was a good environment to stay in. Uh, if you knew the other component, you'd question me even more. And that component is um, we implemented change, even though the uh, our employees were members of the UAW. And at that time, when you said lean, all they heard was, yeah, leaning people out. 
And um, so it, it was it was hard. It was a hard um, transition to, to build trust and, um, you know, with each other, the union and the management to go down this path, knowing that the, the goal is to do things more efficiently, safely, more productively, which can translate into not needing as many people. On the other side, the hard part was growth. How do we continue to grow and create new opportunities for those people that we freed up from those earlier operations? And so it was, it was always a balance. It was a challenge, but um, we successfully did it as a, as a uh, manufacturing plant. Um, and for that, I'm really proud. And it, it, I think it demonstrates the, the foresight of that union, um, that, that local understanding at that time the world in manufacturing is changing. Uh, companies were going to Mexico at that time. Um, that's all they were worried about. Nobody started to, nobody saw the transition to Eastern Europe. Um, and so uh, it was a great company. And um, I could live local. I could raise a family there. Uh, just many, many benefits. Great people. It's so fascinating to hear you talk this way about manufacturing because you talk to others and, and they w will, will have said, and some of them still say, and I guess that's partly the challenge we're, we're, we're going to talk about now, that you know manufacturing is sort of dirty, dangerous, and poorly paid, unstable jobs. It's all going to get outsourced. It's a losing proposition. And you speak in, in such different language, John. How is it? that these two narratives can have coexisted and can still coexist? Yeah. Um, if, if, if I had the answer, right, I think it, it's the silver bullet, but there, there are many factors, uh, generational factors. Um, when, when I was growing up, uh, the next big town over to us had a General Motors plant. And so there were many union workers who um, were making great money. And the downtown was vibrant, but the costs were, were too much, right? And so the union union closed and moved on. Well, those, those um, the, the company moved on. The, the generation of workers who had children who were raising a family were saying, do not go into manufacturing. It's a dead-end job. So out of the gate, we influenced people, our children, not to go that path. Um, in our school system, we don't, um, we haven't, I should say, we haven't promoted manufacturing um, in, in the new light. And that new light would be that not every shop is dirty, dark, and unsafe. Um, there are operations where you, you will get greasy. It's just the nature of some jobs. But there are many, many jobs where you could be wearing a lab coat. Um, working in an air-conditioned environment, being a technician. The, 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 the scope of opportunities for jobs in manufacturing um, are, are just amazing. And there, you can almost define your job if you know how to create value for that company. And so um, most companies are looking for entry-level jobs. They're paying very well. What I, what I think... Um, new uh, potential employees and their parents should consider is 
um, I went back to school, to college, because my company paid for it. The whole thing. And so I, I wasn't leaving that company. <laughs> you know, we were committed to each other. Um, and so if, if people or, or employees see that there's a lot of manufacturing companies who are willing to at least share in that cost, um, students who can go to a community college here in Massachusetts um, for far less money than a state university and certainly a private university. And so the first two years, education will put you in a mid-level uh, range uh, in, a, in a management position or an engineering position in a, a manufacturing company. So the, the path to the high-paying jobs uh, through education is two, it's shorter and it's, and it's least expensive. The narrative has to change. Um, and there's been many ways to um, try and do that. The, the challenge is, at least for Massachusetts, Massachusetts wants to do it for everybody. And, and, and in organizations like us, we can only touch um, as many people as we can touch. And we, do, we do see a lot of people but it's a fraction of who we need to touch. And, and I know the state has worked on ideas to promote manufacturing. We've had a lot of celebration at manufacturing companies, but they get manufacturing companies get all the exposure when they lay off. Um, nobody really wants to talk about the new plant opening, but as much, as much. It's, it's a fascinating, fascinating societal challenge and it's obviously each state has a different challenge i wanted to go in a little bit i guess to the specificity of massachusetts in this regard and you you were sort of touching on it uh the the fact that we kind of want everyone on board here and that it's it, it is really so that's one part of the challenge the other part is of course that for a while here massachusetts has been successful at promoting a a quite different uh, industry, right? We, we have sort of promoted, you know, around our universities, uh, high-tech, but not high-tech as applied to manufacturing, even though that is actually arguably very much a Massachusetts uh, stronghold as well. Um, but we have promoted, you know, kind of our high-tech aspect and then exported it, I guess, to other states and, and arguably and other things. What, what do you think the prospect is that the narrative can be and actually is that a lot of the deep technology that's developed in Massachusetts is now increasingly going into manufacturing industry um, and, and can start sort of not just changing the narrative, but it's actually the reality of it is that there is high technology, you know, it may be dirty uh, because, you know, I mean, if you're working on engines, you know, how much are you going to clean? You know, eventually it's going to be dirty. But, but I mean, it could be, like you said, you could be wearing uh, lab coats, you could be working with advanced technology. And there's, there's just this combination of advanced technology and manufacturing jobs and, and the factories themselves that are changing. Um, and places like MIT, you know, are involved in these things. H how do you see this this thing? Because I, I don't think no one wants to oversell it either. So, you know, 
where are we now with manufacturing in Massachusetts? What, what proportion of the economy is manufacturing to sort of things like the gross domestic product, the GDP? And, you know, how many, how many jobs are there currently and how many will there be in manufacturing in Massachusetts? So these are, I mean, these are big statistics, but I know you, you are on top of some of them because that's, that's what you do. So I wanted to ask you the big question. Um, so it, dynamic, right? It's always changing. The, um, so here's how I see Massachusetts. For a small state, um, our density is pretty good uh, in terms of manufacturing locations. We have just over 7,000 manufacturers uh, in the state of Massachusetts. New Jersey, in comparison, would have somewhere around 12,000 manufacturers. But the sectors that they focus on, uh, there's differences, greater differences. In Massachusetts, um, you asked about the GDP, that's somewhere around $47 billion in, in uh, gross domestic product for Massachusetts um, G, uh, manufacturing GDP. Uh, total employees, it, it was just over 250,000, so it's it probably just under 250 right now because of COVID, uh, but a significant, significant piece of the um, working population. The GDP represents about 10% of the, the state's um, uh, intake. The, um, the, the, the manufacturing sector, uh, the best way for me to describe it is we have a lot of job shops, meaning that they're, they're more tuned to making custom products or just a couple of parts for a customer versus a production shop that would have the same type of product that they would make over and over again in some type of assembly process. Where Massachusetts is more tuned towards the job shop, uh, there are many, many job shops. We have about um, 1,100 uh, machine shops uh, that metal cutting uh, that support the you know, the aerospace and the defense sector, which has been very very steady. the The rest of the uh, manufacturing is really broken up into many different sectors. Food is a uh, a big sector, um, and and it's starting to get some attention because everything goes back to labor, the cost of labor. Um, the uh, bio sector has got uh, unbelievable support from the state of Massachusetts in the, in the tune of billions of dollars in the last 10 years. And there's been um, investment in real estate um, and a real strong effort to uh, open up those uh, bioparks anchored by, you know, a big OEM. And so, and, and that is because the education is right here in uh in the very local area. So Massachusetts has really good colleges, uh, very well-respected colleges. These companies, particularly the high-tech companies, want to be right near the universities. Um, when you look around the MIT campus, in the streets all around it is little innovation centers working on um, um, uh, flexible uh, hybrid electronics um, or... Um, of uh, functional fibers, uh, fibers that would go into your clothing and actually do something. Uh, the effort was for the warfighter to have a, a, a uniform that could heal um, 
it could provide heat, cooling, uh, make the make the uh, the warfighter invisible. Uh, just so many different applications, and they're working on that right here in Massachusetts. Um, so there's there's been great great innovation and and, and turned translated into um, real manufacturing opportunities. The the electrical, the electronic industry, computer making, electronic assembly. We still do some uh, work around um, a, a lot of ceramic work. The work is diverse. We we have uh, of the seven thousand um, manufacturers, probably we have maybe less than forty companies over two thousand employees, and so. When you think about that ratio, that dynamic is not what I grew up in. I grew up with a lot more OEMs right here in our backyard working with our uh, supply chain. And so it, the manufacturing dynamic, the makeup, it's constantly changing, but will never be. Massachusetts is not tuned to be a high production manufacturer. We're really a custom, um, uh, a specialty manufacturer build to order, um, hot, more high tech stuff, a lot of nuclear uh, type work. Fascinating. And on the education side, you, you, we have covered a little bit, you know, what's happening at, at MI, on the MIT side. And you have talked a little bit about community colleges, which is sort of representing this broader education challenge. Where does the Massachusetts Manufacturing Extension Partnership, the Mass MEP, which you represent, where, where do you fit in as an institution? Who you, you utilizes your efforts? And uh, what exactly is it that you do? How, and how do people uh, and companies connect to you? Yeah. Um, so it, the, um, the, the, college, the college system, particularly MIT, uh, we get connected through relationships uh, within the manufacturing ecosystem that Massachusetts has created. So first of all, about eight years ago, Massachusetts created an advanced manufacturing collaborative that is, um, that is a members, not membership, but it is a, a group of manufacturers, uh, colleges, universities, uh, technical people, the MEP, uh, but all the, the workforce investment boards, um, all the people that support that ecosystem. And so that ecosystem has been in place for a while now. And so when we have challenges that need to go across the board um, through, through our, uh, our government, through our administration, the state administration, they convene us and we work through those problems. That's unique, I think, to probably a bunch of other states. But that does help launch us and create these partnerships where we can all still work together, even though there's not uh, a crisis to work on. And so the MIT is certainly part of that, like UMass Lowell. We get connected to the technical colleges. And often it's not, it, our role is not to be the experts in the technology that they may be exploring or trying to build. Um, our knowledge and our, our value is we connect those other organizations to the manufacturers who have the capability, who have the knowledge, um, who, who 
provide information back to MIT and the uh, UMass Lowell. They wouldn't know how to make those connections. And so, um, and then from there, we're able to support those organizations by ongoing um, support with those manufacturers. I'll give you an example. Um, the state, Massachusetts, invested uh, just most recently $16 million in any company that could uh, pivot uh, their operation and make PPE for consumption here in Massachusetts. And so we were called in uh, at the very beginning, and our job was to find those resources. Um, 500 Massachusetts companies we vetted through. Um, it ended up at 16, excuse me, uh, just over 20 companies who shared $16 million in capital to build out their facility to make gowns, um, surgical masks, um, face shields. Um, um, oh, gosh. The breathing apparatus. <laughs> I can't think of the name of it. Uh, ventilator. I guess it is the ventilator. But um, it, it was it was just an amazing effort and very rewarding uh, time when we were going through COVID. But we we can get involved in things like that where we we connect the the folks that aren't normally connected and don't know who to talk to. So that's we we support the ecosystem. Um, more than maybe leading in certain technology endeavors, but it's it's the reality is we can't do it without them and they can't do it without us. And so it's a so, it's a win win. So the MEP is also a training institution in its in and of itself, correct? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And how how do people? So you train manufacturers. So in, in Massachusetts, these are the specialty manufacturers mostly, but and you train them on on various things. Uh, so you train them on things like lean management, but also on digital uh, practices. Yeah, yeah. The um, so our, our primary um, objective it, when we work with manufacturers is to help stabilize the operation. Um, we many small manufacturers in Massachusetts of the seven thousand twenty, uh, excuse me, eighty percent of those companies are under twenty employees. So when you have that numbers of that size, those small companies, who, whoever the, the owner is or the president, probably has a great strength in the knowledge of the product, um, but maybe not so much about how to lay out a facility or how to optimize an operation or how to set up systems for your people, uh, HR systems or how to set ISO systems into place. There's so many different things that you don't learn when you're an engineer designing products. And so it's more than engineers, uh, but there, I use that as an example. There are many reasons that small manufacturers can't do everything. And so we support them where, where they need help. They do everything else. They're the, the technical experts. We do, though, work with them out of the gate to... Uh, create stability and predictability in their operation. They can't be running around day to day putting out fires and grow a business. So I understand that uh, you know out of these seven thousand manufacturers in Massachusetts currently, um, 
you have over the years, I guess since 1996, when when this institution was founded, you've had some 2,000 clients. That means you haven't covered everyone. Is that kind of what do what does everyone else do then? I mean, do they not know about you, or is it just that they can't find you, or do you think that they just don't prioritize this training? So, what about this discrepancy? Because two thousand clients, and then these are not the same seven thousand, perhaps that existed in nineteen ninety six. So, th- there is a bunch of companies that you just don't reach. Right? How do you describe that group? Um. Well, the ones that have been in business for years, you, you just maybe they know what they're doing. <laughs> no, not not everybody. So it's not it's it's not that um, mass MEP necessarily saves people from bankruptcy, but what we do is we 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 turn the trend from from some companies actually in decline to some companies just plateauing, and so the companies that are think they're doing okay because they're getting a paycheck every week. Um, we challenge that with growth in terms of top line without investing into anything more than um, um, equipment or investing more into finding more business. Because if you, if you optimize your highest cost and for manufacturers, it's labor, optimize that to produce more you have a competitive advantage. And so not everybody thinks that way naturally. They Because when, when people start something and they create a process, that's the best process that you'll ever have until somebody new comes in and can convince them that there's a different way to look at it. And so evolution of change, I guess. It's, it's fascinating, right? I mean, if you have your own business and you're struggling, the moment you don't struggle, you, of course, naturally will consider that success and so should you. And it is success, but right. it is taking it to the next level. I was curious, so you, on your website, I believe, or somewhere, I read that clients get 35 to 1 ROI, so return of investment. Now, that's a big financial term and it can be measured in many ways. How, how do you measure it and communicate it to, to your clients, meaning uh, you know, manufacturers who might even listen to this podcast here in Massachusetts? What does ROI mean? So you were just talking about it as uh, optimizing labor. So is it as simple as that? You can essentially prove to them that if you go through these courses, on average, our, our, you know, your clients essentially have optimized labor. They've been able to hire two for one or, or, or three for one, just based on what exactly? So the, um, any, and any organization, if they believed it and had money, would want to invest right away, right? Yeah, well, it seems, <laughs> it seems like this is a good investment, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, the the number is an economic number, and it's based on what we measure. And so, let me just back up a little bit. Uh, the MEPs and the MEP system, of which there is an MEP center in every state—Puerto Rico, Alaska, Hawaii—and this was a state-funded initiative. I mean, a, a nationally funded initiative That's, way yeah, back the, when. The National yeah. Institute of Standards and Technology (MEP) Manufacturing Extension Partnership receives um, somewhere around $140 million a year in the budget to uh, provide funding and operational expenses for the MEP uh, office, uh, but funding to each of the state's uh, MEP centers. 
And so we are in a 10-year cooperative agreement. It's a, it's a manufacturing, people would call that a 10-year PO. But we're, we're pretty, as long as we do things the right way, uh, we're guaranteed a, a certain amount of money every year for 10 years. And so because of that, there are requirements. And NIST, when you think of NIST, the measurement people, um, we are measured as well. The MEPs have, have to produce impact. And the impact is measured in, in a couple of ways. And so for traditional manufacturers, we do measure cost savings. And that information is given to us by the client. They, they don't actually give it to us. They give it to a company that surveys them. Then what we look at is, did you have new sales? Um, and what were those? And then there are calculations that will project things out. We ask them about investment, investment in their people, capital, things like that. Um, then there are um, uh, a couple other variables I, I don't remember right now. But what, it, what they are are economic indicators. And in the aggregate, and when you create the multipliers that are, are used in uh, economics, Econ the economic multiplier for manufacturing says for every manufacturing job you create, you create two other jobs in the manufacturing ecosystem. Okay, and so that creates money. So it's, it's an accumulation of all these different metrics that, that achieve the 34 to 1. Now, let me qualify it with this. The, the NIST organization hires the people that do the um, survey. The people that do the survey contact the manufacturers, do it with them over the phone, and the data is put into the system. And when it's completed, we see it. So, um, if if it was if it was if it was money, you and I both would be on on this one. But this it's more of a directional indicator for me. I get it. Um, I'm curious about another thing. So, at the MEP or the whole MEP system is about training. And you train manufacturers, but how, how do you train the trainers? How do you know that the people you employ to come up with best practices and, and suggestions that are not just generic, because they have to be tailored, I imagine, to, to each situation. And you, you, know, you, you give some amount of guidance that is actually tailored to each individual business. And, and like we said earlier, this is a changing situation. How do you train your trainers and, and how do you recruit them and, and, and kind of how does one get into your system that way? 80-20, um, right? So um, um, how do we say it? So our project managers who are the ones that are out working with our manufacturers, they're the 80%, okay? And so what they deliver, what they train in uh, is really around uh, the, the, the continuous improvement suite. All right. And the quality suite. Um, and so what we do is, first of all, we look for qualified people um, and we certainly get references. Secondly, when we bring people in, we run them through our programs and we have an onboarding program where you go through a series of um, learning uh, through the, the books, uh, the videos, moving on to a simulation where you get to watch and participate, and then move into a mentored delivery yourself, working with your uh, professional. And so content is very, very important, but also in our organization, presentation is just as important. Uh, 
um, because um, we have to we have to gain the respect of our clients. And um, so knowing what you're talking about and presenting it in a professional way is very important. We went into a little bit the the fact that the MEP system is national. So there's, I imagine, then one MEP in every state plus Puerto Rico, like you said. What can other states and regions learn from Massachusetts? What is it that you think you as an organization have done right and have done maybe somewhat better or maybe there's just some fortuitous circumstances? I mean, obviously not every state has a has an MIT, but but of course there's there's other institutions and there's... You know, education is a stronghold in Massachusetts. There's many, many educational institutions, and that I imagine has to matter when when we come to this bigger challenge, which is not just teaching excellence, but actually teaching across the board and teaching these seven thousand manufacturers, but also teaching the younger generation and and getting into high schools and and to awareness. What are some of the things that you are proud of? and want to share and what are the, some of the challenges that are still remaining for you? The um, many things I'm proud of um, <clears throat> when it comes to the MEP, uh, Massachusetts MEP, um, we, we're a young organization. Uh, not too long ago, our demographic was a little bit older, um, but we felt the need to uh, maybe transition a little bit and, and create some diversity so that we could still bring the expertise of the folks that been there, done that. But also what we wanted to do is bring in the youth who were um, going to be like our future leaders. And I needed to know how our future leaders are thinking and what interests them, and uh, how to relate to them. And so we, we took a conscious effort to make that happen. And uh, very happy with where we are right now. The, um, the awareness of, uh, manufacturing, the awareness of MEP. Uh, we, we do put a lot of effort into marketing ourselves to the manufacturing community. And, um, and we do that through a lot of the social media. I, you know, it's not my thing, but I know we're in all the right um, social media places. Well, I've spoken to Christie's. So are you sure are? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, so I think that, that helps, but, I, I come from kind of an old school where uh, somebody I worked with when I first came here to MEP told me, you, you got to show up, meaning when there, there, are, there are opportunities to get together with others or go to companies, you got to show up. And so it's effort. And that was a big part of it. The, the, um, I think one of the, maybe it's unique to us, maybe not. I don't know. I haven't asked the question. But where MassMEP is a nonprofit. We're a 501c3. Um, and so when we get NIST money, we have to spend all that NIST money, NIST MEP money. And so my budget is from um, the money they give us to zero. And at the end of the year, you got to spend all your money. And so when, when you look at your business that way, I think it oversimplifies what we're trying to accomplish because MassMEP wanted to do more and, and we wanted to grow. And so if we just looked at ourselves as spending down the money, we weren't going to grow. And so in the last four years, we've taken on a mentality that we're in this for the profit. We don't make profit, but we look at it like a for-profit business. 
And so we talk that way. We think that way. Um, and it creates really good dynamics and really good questions. In a nonprofit, you wouldn't be talking about margin. But in our business, we may be thinking about that for some reason or another. That's great to hear. What about internationally? I, I imagine that not every region has had the fortune of having such a program. Although, you know, there are there are other countries that are supporting their manufacturers in, in very handsome ways. What do you think internationally when you when you look look about um, what are some of the lessons you think that that any manufacturer or any ecosystem needs to take on board right now? And and I guess you know uh, further to that, what are some of the trends that you see on the horizon that's going to affect all of us, where wherever we are producing? Yeah, um, it's it's a tough comparison internationally because. You can't really compare yourself to the, the China, India, South Korea, where um, labor costs are much lower and, and manufacturers can operate differently. Um, German manufacturers, uh, they do good and they produce high priced product, but it's a premium product and there is still subsidy in Germany. Um, a, lot of, a lot of the successful, successful companies, countries, that are manufacturing are usually supported by a, a subsidy, a tax credit or something uh, through their government. Um, the United States is, I, we do it, we call it different things, but it's not to the extent that at least I've seen with uh, other countries. Right now, there's a, there's a, um, there's a, a strong push in, in the political world to, uh, to make sure that in the future that all PPE for the warfighter will be made here in the United States. And um, I think it's a great effort, but what, what it does, it's going to create a bunch of small some companies that will have to live off a subsidy. And that's not sustainable. And so um, I don't know what the answer is, but um, I think, I do know the future and, um, and, and the, there are, I can't tell you where exactly, but there are some companies getting more involved into, um, I'll, I'll call it the internet of things, which is far greater than um, I think most of us are starting to realize. But the entry into the internet things is knowledge and understanding about your business. And it begins with data. If, without data, you can you're, you're just operating in the blind. And so the and everybody will say yeah yeah yeah, but the quantum leap here is that um, even though computers have been around a long time, we haven't fully utilized the capability of the computer. And um, we what we will see in in the not too near future is a, a greater use of sensors in our manufacturing process, giving real-time feedback um, based on uh, good manufacturing practices. If you want something measured five times an hour, it'll measure five times an hour. It will give you that kind of consistency. You will get warnings um, about things that were about to go bad uh, versus having something go down and shutting your whole production line down. That's the future of manufacturing. That's a huge cost that we can pull out of the system. And um, maybe at that point, 
labor is not such a big deal. To your point, John, it's astonishing to me how much time we have spent as a global society developing computers for individuals like me who mostly sit behind a desk, uh, which I regret because I don't really like sitting behind a desk. I'm actually much more hands-on and I like using my, my, my hands. But in my professional life, that has unfortunately for now been the case. And I've been fortuitous uh, to, to make use of computers, but it strikes me now that I'm working so much more with manufacturing that a lot of the things that you as a desk worker take for granted, things that are improving my life, those tools for the longest time were not adapted to someone who was standing up, someone who was moving about. And even when the mobile revolution sort of came and you got cell phones, the apps that started showing up there were also not optimized for, for the worker. They were optimized for someone you know, making use of their spare time, sitting on a bus or something, but they were not optimized for someone in a work situation. So there's a lot of catch-up to do when it comes to augmenting the worker and augmenting work with real apps that make a difference and that are simple enough that you can uh, use them without any uh, significant amount of training. What, what do you think it's going to take uh, so you mentioned sensors, that's sort of w one aspect, right? And you can mm -hmm. plug into those. Uh, but there are so many low-hanging fruit, I, I imagine, you know, on the shop floor, even in advanced manufacturing here in Massachusetts, where mm -hmm. we're just not counting things at the moment. We're, we're not getting the, the data that lean needs to work, right? That we, we're, we're just, yeah. I mean, we just don't have things that, that would enable us to to make an efficient process. Whether it's Lean, Six Sigma, any program you want to lay over your production process, if your production process is broken, it's still going to be broken. So you gotta you gotta fix the foundation, right? You, you gotta know what your starting point is. Uh, then then you can build from there and, and and you know implement and do a lot of these things. You know, something that came to my mind when you were talking about um, the quality of work, right? The future of work, right? And so here's where we're catching up. The, uh, the, the game controls that the, the, the young people use to play video games and things like that, um, all that is, is coming to fruition within the manufacturing plants, and it's going to look different. But there's going to be a lot of digital interaction and a lot of ability to make suggestions and change. That, to me, is really starting to fulfill um, what the, this next generation is, will be talking about, and that is the quality of work. Can I be in, a, in a, an environment where I don't have to worry about breathe, breathing poison air? Can I use my head? Can I work with the computers that I'm very comfortable with because I was born with one in my womb? You know, they, they just, they get it. Um, I got a three-year-old granddaughter who uses an iPhone just as good as I do. Um, it's scary. Those things come natural to them. And so we're, I hope we take advantage of it. And I, and so, you know, back to your question about what the future holds, it's, um, it, it's certainly not, not robotics necessarily, but more augmentation, automation, um, things like that. To your point, though, John, I think the younger generation, I, I have kids, they're young, 
but they're very sensitive to, they get to a situation where the computers and the tools that they're used to are not naturally part of the process. And then they tune out. Oh, So you, you see, so we are faced with this challenge of implementing this fast enough because if they see old school tools, if they see me trying to kind of uh, thread something down their, uh, you know, the, their day that isn't perceived as what they think is fun and entertaining or, or, or just productive, then they tune out. So I guess that is the challenge we're facing, yeah. right? We continuously yeah. have to, we have to be at the level where the younger generation is. So if the tools that we're using to teach, to show them, or indeed the work content still has those old clunky things, or, you know, I guess sometimes no, no automation, then, then yeah. they're, they're frustrated, right? Because right. now they're, they have to adjust their yeah. expectations massively. Yeah. Yeah, work content, providing value, feedback. Um, there, a lot of basic things are very important uh, to people. But uh, do we want to interest people to come back to manufacturing? How do we do it? And yeah. so I think I think talking the way they talk, you know, and uh, giving them the window of they can be who they are and still contribute. We, um, you know, when you were doing manufacturing fifty years ago. Nobody anticipated somebody having a cell phone and having to deal with that. And we, we in manufacturing dealt with the cell phone as a nuisance. We didn't find a way to make it productive. And right. It was an interruption, right, in the yes, workday yes. or something to, 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 to keep out. Right, 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 exactly. So, well, John, I, I, <laughs> I, I want to just let you finish with what you think is, uh, I guess, the takeaway here. You know, what, where is this going um, not necessarily, you know, the, the long distant future, but, you know, what are you seeing that, that you are excited about in, in the next few years, even just for your organization? What do you think is, um, where are we headed with this? So, you know, the grant, in the grand scheme of things, you talked about data and, and making use of it. And we have talked about what that kind of has to mean in terms of the younger generation getting more fascinated with this. Um, as a closing statement, what, what do you think, um, is something we should focus on, whether it is in the educational system, whether it is towards our kids, um, or it could be more of a governmental challenge. What are some of the unsolved solvables that we should be uh, investing more in, focusing more on, changing our approach to? Yeah, yeah. Um, so starting at the education level, um, there, there has to be, more open communication about job opportunities, more transparency. Um, get through, we have to get through the noise of uh, dark, dirty, unsafe. Truthfulness, what's out there, where are the opportunities, and what does that mean? Because there's this hundreds, thousands of great jobs here in Massachusetts ready to go and across the, across the country. Um, we've got to have... A, a, I, I'm not an educator, so I can't answer exactly, but I grew up in a, a town where I'd shop and I was introduced to metal cutting and wood. Um, at least it allowed me to make an, a decision. You know, who knows? I, you know, somebody may love it and, uh, and, and not necessarily go on to a business school for a degree, but we have to expose our, those students to more. 
of what those opportunities are. The work is not going away. We make stuff still. We make a lot here in this country. And in order to make it, we're going to need engineers, right? We're going to need good managers. We're going to need talented um, people who can do uh, really the basic things around shop math, learn how to read a blueprint. Um, here's the two toughest ones, communicate and work as a team member. Those are um, behaviors that aren't taught really well um, and need to be learned when um, we see new people coming into the workplace. Um, but at the same time, managers have to learn how to communicate and talk to those new employees because they will be motivated differently. So we're going to continue through some cultural shifts. The, um, so I'm hopeful that the education system will, will keep promoting that. At the MEP level, the community colleges, uh, the universities, uh, in Massachusetts now, we continue to hold uh, big events and we celebrate manufacturing. So we have coming up in September, um, an event at Polar Park where we'll be celebrating uh, manufacturing with the Manufacturing Award Ceremony, celebrating some 50 manufacturers for their manufacturing greatness and the work they do here in Massachusetts, celebrating some of our um, political leaders who, who fight for us every day, fight for the MEP, fight for the manufacturers, and give them an opportunity and a platform, um, and, and celebrate the businesses, bring the manufacturers in. Um, the you know One of the best supply chains is right around the corner from you. And you don't always know it. Um, get to meet who else here in Massachusetts is making things. And so we'll continue to do that. We'll continue to work with the school system. We work very closely with the, um, we call them mass hire. They, um, they're the workforce boards. And we work very closely with them, uh, helping to bring technical training or bringing them to manufacturing companies so that they can present but we're, we're all connected in this ecosystem one way or the other. And, um, and, I, and that's one of our strengths. We've learned how to do that. Uh, so I personally, um, uh, my son's an attorney. He, he works in manufacturing now. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, it, 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 it's really about quality of life. And quality of life has changed a lot. So uh, I, I believe... There's, there will continue to be growth in manufacturing here in Massachusetts. Um, I see new companies coming in all the time. The bio sector has a great head start here in Massachusetts. But um, the East Coast and the West Coast right now are doing the best. Uh, there's amazing manufacturing going on. In, in the Rust Belt, uh, everybody shut down in COVID, whether it was auto manufacturers or the recreational vehicles. Uh, so they're, they're struggling to get started up, and that's what disrupted our supply chain, having all these shutdowns. But uh, we're, once we get out of that, um, there's no reason to believe that we're not going to get back to pre-pandemic levels where every manufacturer was just producing as much as they could um, and trying to meet demand, uh, only with the struggles of trying to find good people to work within their organization. 
Wow, John. I mean, it just goes to show you it's about being being prepared for the future. And, and what, what the future threw us last year was a surprise to many, but, but it is about resilience. And, and like you have pointed out uh, repeatedly in this conversation, there are so many exciting challenges to take on in manufacturing. And if you're ready for it, there's, there's growth in, in the sector. And that, I think, brings optimism. So I thank you for that. Well, you're welcome. Thank you. Yeah, it was a pleasure to speak with you. I hope I can check in with you. It seems like it's a an evolving space and there are things that are opening up now, perhaps also because of, of COVID and other things that are leading us to, to even greater opportunity. COVID raised the level of manufacturing more than it has in the last 20 years. Everybody saw and thought about, holy shit, we can't get it because it's made in Right. That scared people. Right. So it's gotten a completely new awareness to the topic of who produces what we depend on for our life. That's that's the question. And what's the plan? How are we going to address it? Well, I'll be exploring it on the podcast. If you have ideas, <laughs> come back. <laughs> thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Bye now. You have just listened to episode 46 of the Augmented Podcast with host Trondarne Unheim. The topic was manufacturing training in Massachusetts, and our guest was John Killam, president of Mass MEP. In this conversation, we talked about the important role of manufacturing in Massachusetts, fostering the next generation manufacturers, manufacturing workforce trends and action. My takeaway is that manufacturing is surprisingly important in Massachusetts, which most people don't necessarily see as a manufacturing state, because it is a high-cost state that competes mostly in high-end, technology-infused manufacturing of specialty parts. However, with Industry 4.0, that kind of manufacturing is on the rise, so the issue will only become more and more key, and the workforce will need to grow to keep up with the demand. In that, there is opportunity for young people. And new manufacturing jobs can be exciting jobs, too. In fact, most of them are. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 27, Industry 4.0 Tools, episode 17, Smart Manufacturing for All, or episode 11, Empowering Workers to Innovate. Augmented, upskilling the workforce for Industry 4.0 frontline operations.